Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. The phrase, what must I do to be saved, uh, is quoted in thousands of evangelistic sermons. It's advertised at the back of buses. I was sitting in Belfast in the traffic jam the other day, and there was a bus, a city bus, right in front of me, with a gospel text on the back of the bus. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It's sung in songs. The prison officer's question has been written in the minds of hundreds of thousands of people, and I've no doubt it must have been very instrumental in awakening people to their need of salvation. So it's our responsibility to read the passage. And with a correct understanding of the work of God in salvation, and a correct understanding of the proper response of men and women to that work of God, we should examine the passage, find its context, and look at that phrase, find out what it means. We have praise, first of all, and then we have panic, and then we have prayer. Praise in the reversal, in the midst of the reversal that Paul and Silas have suffered. Panic when the Philippian jailer realized that not only was he going to lose his job, but under normal circumstances he was going to lose his life. And prayer, the prayer of a guilty sinner. Praise. Let's remind ourselves again then of the condition of these two prisoners. They're obviously in prison. And so from the purely human standpoint, things are going bad, physically speaking, for Paul and Silas. This is, from a natural viewpoint, a very serious reversal, a very serious setback. Let's just review the the previous verses. Look at Acts chapter 16 and verse 22. Remember what had happened when we last looked at the chapter. Uh, A girl who was mentally ill, who was suffering from the oppression that sin brings upon life, this girl has been gloriously restored and set free and added to the church. And her slave masters are not at all happy because they had been selling her services to uh, other men in the city. But here in chapter 17, or chapter 16 rather, And verse 34, is it? We're looking at, no, it can't be. Verse 22. A multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison charging the jailer to keep them safely. 
who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now look at what has happened. Let's see this setback. There's first of all humiliation. They have been publicly humiliated in front of the whole city. They have been stripped naked in front of the howling crowd. It's what they what they were doing, what they would do. <clears throat> in verse 22, the magistrates rent off their clothes. First thing, a procedure that's designed to reduce them to a laughing stock, to make them feel foolish and feel embarrassed. And then they have suffered physical abuse. They have been beaten with rods. These magistrates mentioned here were known by the Romans as lictors, literally bearers of rods, for they carried rods as a sign of their office. <clears throat> and they weren't just ceremonial rods either. When you were beaten with rods by the lictors, the physical abuse that you suffered was horrendous. It left your back ripped to shreds. It was a seething, painful mass of skin and blood and gore. The flesh was torn from your bones. They have been humiliated. They have suffered physical abuse. And they have been imprisoned. All they did was set a guard free. All they did was help someone. Now they're in prison. And they're not just in the ordinary prison. They're in the most secure part of the prison. The jailer has been charged to keep them safely. And in verse 24, when he received such a charge, he thrust them into the inner prison, into the dungeon. What he did next was he made fast their feet in stalks. We wonder why. They're under lock and key. They've been beaten to within an inch of their lives. They're lying in a dungeon and he puts their feet into stocks. See, what I'm trying to get to you is the cruelty of what's going on here. They were manacled. They are placed in stocks in the most secure dungeon and there's a reason for it. It was to induce the maximum pain and discomfort on the prisoner. For those stocks held their feet. They didn't hold their hands. They held their feet. They held their feet up so they couldn't turn off their back. They had to lie on their back on the rough prison floor. Now think about that. If your feet were held up and you weren't able to turn and your back was a mass of seething blood and gore and mess and you'd been beaten and thrashed. How would you ever find any comfort? You couldn't turn onto your side. You couldn't get free from the physical pain that was being inflicted upon you. They were held in a totally unnatural position and held there for so long, this was the idea, held there for so long that any relief from the searing pain of the beating was denied them. They couldn't stretch. They couldn't move. 
They couldn't ease their muscles. I, I want you to see this evening that this Philippian jailer is an extremely cruel man. Get the depth of his depravity here. This wasn't McGabry prison, you know, where you go in as a prisoner and come out with a degree and you've got internet in your cell. This is a totally different thing. This prison officer, this warder, is a very vindictive, ugly-natured, cruel man. And the disciples are in total agony. Enough for some men to actually die from the pain in the prison. And there they are, at the very least, they should be complaining about the unfairness of it all. They should be demanding their human rights. They should be demanding the right to a fair trial because up to now in this narrative, you haven't seen any charges being laid against them in a trial, in a fair trial. They should be, if they were doing what other prisoners would do in those circumstances, they should be cursing the prison guard. They should be wailing and weeping and shouting because of the pain. And yet, verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God in the midst of the dreadful circumstances in which they were placed. Do you know, I'd love to know what they prayed about, wouldn't you? It just says here that Paul and Silas prayed. I'd love to know what was the content of their prayer. I'm quite certain it would have been praise. And I'm quite certain there would have been confession of sin, because that's how we approach God. Quite certain there would have been thanksgiving for the souls who had been saved, for Lydia and her family who had been born again, for the girl, the slave girl, who had been rescued from all of her sin. And I'm also quite sure, being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be praying for those who despitefully use them. You can imagine Paul and Silas in the stocks in that dreadful awful agony praying for the jailer Lord will you save this jailer this man who has been so bad to us this man who has locked us up for no reason who's had us beaten and who's making us suffer oh God we love him will you save him by your sovereign grace You know, it's easy for us to say, whatever your circumstances, praise God. I've heard this passage preached on lots of times. And we've all been told, haven't we, that Paul and Silas are a good example to us. That whenever we get under our circumstances, we should pray and praise God. It's not so easy when you're actually in the circumstances. Paul and Silas are suffering for Christ. But remember... No matter how much we suffer for Christ, he suffered more for us. The psalmist in Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise 
shall continually be in my mouth. Praise in the midst of reversal. Let's move on. Because the next thing we see in the story is panic. Panic at the realization of what has happened. Have you ever had a panic attack? They range from a a mild shock to a traumatic life-shattering event that can precipitate an extreme physical and mental reaction. Becoming aware of something really terrible, an illness, an immediate danger, and one of the long-term effects, I'm told, of serving in the military and in the army or the, the navy in war situations is what's known nowadays as post-traumatic stress disorder, where a life-changing event plays itself out repeatedly in your mind, particularly during the hours of darkness, that you awaken in an awful state of panic. Some of us who served in various government branches in the 70s and 80s, the UDR or the RUC still have those flashbacks. I may have some idea of the state of mind of the jailer when he discovered that the prisoners under his care were free to walk away under normal circumstances for a Roman jailer. That life, that event would not just be life changing, it would be life ending. Let's see how the situation worked out. The first thing we see is there was divine intervention, verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. How quickly our personal circumstances can change. Let's think about this. This was divine intervention. Um, But I think... And you can disagree with me on this. I think that the act of deliverance, the act of divine intervention was in the timing rather than the actual earthquake itself. Because you see, earthquakes are a natural event. And it's the result of plates in the earth's crust shifting. And it happens all the time. And the town of Philippi was particularly susceptible to that kind of natural event. The fact that the prison doors were opened, that was no amazing miracle either. The doors were simply fastened in those days by a wooden plank. And the plank went along the front of the door and it was slotted into two upright brackets at either side of the door. There was no security locks. The movement of the walls and a huge earthquake. And we're told here that this was an earthquake of great magnitude. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. So that would definitely have resulted in the bar that held the door closed being removed, being shaken free. Same with the stocks. Now the real miracle here is that everything works according to God's perfect timing. Paul later says this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, another well-known verse. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. 
quite sure about this. You know, God could have intervened miraculously to free Paul and Silas just as he did, like he did with Peter in Acts chapter 12. Peter was led out of the prison in Jerusalem by an angel. It was a divine intervention. It was a remarkable miracle. But here at Philippi, all we're told is that there was a great earthquake as they were praising and the prisoners were set free. It was a miracle of God's perfect timing, an earthquake happening at exactly the right time, in exactly the right place. And it's no coincidence that Paul and Silas are praying and praising when it happened. There was divine intervention in the timing of that earthquake. But there were serious consequences. Look at verse 27. When the keeper of the prison awakened out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself. You see, it's a serious situation for the jailer. In Roman law, a public servant would pay heavily for an offence like that. He's lost a jail full of prisoners. That's a capital offence. And you can be absolutely sure that the method of dispatch would not be pleasant. It would be far less painful just to fall on your sword and try to explain to the lictors that you'd failed in your duty. So you can almost feel the panic, can't you? You can feel the sudden sense of dread that has overcome this man. It's no wonder that in verse 28, Paul had to cry out with a loud voice to, to stop this man ending his own life. After all, if you were a prisoner in a Roman jail and an earthquake had opened the doors, wouldn't you just take the opportunity to walk out and know if I was there, I would. So Paul cried with a loud voice in verse 28, do yourself no harm. We're all here. Why did prisoners not just take the opportunity to escape? Why didn't Paul and Silas not simply get up and walk away? Well, Paul was no quitter. Sure, he wasn't. Remember a few weeks back when we were looking at Acts chapter 14, a few months back, looking at Acts chapter 14. And Paul had already shown us on his missionary journey after he was beaten and left for dead, and he would defy his enemies by simply getting up off the ground and walking straight back into the very city where the beating had taken place. But there's another reason, but we'll not say that till next week. Praise, panic. So what have we seen about this jailer? Let's think about him. He's a vicious cruel man he's now a man who is at the end of his tether he has come to a crisis moment in his life he is at the crossroads praise panic prayer the most important part of the narrative for a soul is about to pass from death unto life. That comes with this most important question. Verse 30. And he brought them out. He called for a light. Verse 29. And he sprang in. I'd say he did. 
and he came trembling and he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? wonder what the jailer was thinking that day when he asked that question. What was foremost in his mind? What do I have to do to be saved? Hmm? Was he thinking he had to do something in order to be saved? Give Paul and Silas some money. Become a Jew. Be circumcised to be saved. Give charity to some worthy cause. Join a church. What is the answer? I wonder if I take a straw poll this evening. And I went round you all and said, what must I do to be saved? What would the answer be? The answer is, there's nothing you can do to be saved. That's the answer. There's nothing you can do to be saved. Christ at the cross has done everything that is necessary for us to be saved. And Paul's answer reflects that. Look at the importance of this. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's all done. There is nothing that we can do except believe that it has been done. And that's not a work. Believing is not a work. Believing is a simple acceptance of what has already been done. It is to rest in Christ's finished work. You can't do anything to be saved. Jesus has done it for you. I remember one day sitting in a church in County Down, an evangelical church. Never was back since. I, it was about 10 years ago and I was... At a loose end in between churches, I just left Albert Bridge Congregational Church, and I hadn't been appointed anywhere else, and I still haven't. And there I was with a loose end, and I went along one Lord's Day evening to a well-known evangelical church, and they had a guest preacher that evening to preach the gospel. And he got up into the pulpit, and he said, "Friends, you need to be saved. And the Lord Jesus has died on the cross for sinners." And God has gone 99% of the way in order for you to be saved. And now all you must do is the one person. And I'm sitting thinking, no, that's absolutely wrong. Because once you think that you have anything to contribute to your salvation, your salvation is null and void. Don't you understand that? There is nothing that you can do to add to what Christ has already done on the cross. Jesus did it all. Our passive response to that is simply to believe. There's something interesting because in verse 32, after telling them that all he has to do is to believe in Christ's finished work, Verse 32, it says, And they spake unto him the word of God. Now, that's a salutary lesson. Imagine this. This cruel man has seen the power of God at work. 
You see, there's some people, and they'll tell you today, that you have to have signs and wonders and miracles so that people will come to Christ. It wasn't the sign or the wonder or the miracle or the earthquake or the conversion of the slave girl. It was the preaching of the word of God. Do you see that's inserted there very clearly? Because it's through preaching that men are saved. It is God's ordained method for to bring the gospel to sinners is through the preached word. So Paul and Silas preached the gospel and he heard the word of God and he has a changed life. There's a testimony here of a complete new life. There are some liberal commentators, if you were reading some of the, the books on Acts, some liberal commentators who think the jailer is asking his question, what must I do to be saved in relation to his own imminent death sentence at the hands of the Romans? What must I do to be rescued from the Lax Romana? But he's about to be discovered that the men who has brutalized are Roman citizens and they have privileged rights and to beat and to imprison a Roman citizen without a trial is a serious offense. It all sounds plausible, but it's well out of context. Not least since the question is asked after the jailer is assured that no prisoners have actually run away. But the jailer's conversion and the reality of his conversion is seen not in his words, but in what happens afterwards in his changed life. Now, remember what we said. This jailer is a cruel, wicked man. He wants these prisoners to suffer almost to the point of death. Verse 33. The same hour of the night he took them and he washed their stripes. The very stripes that he had inflicted. He washed them. He bathed the wounds that he had tried to aggravate. He eased their pains. The opposite of his early intentions he ministered to the prisoners. He was baptized at once, him and all his family. He witnessed to Christ's cleansing work by submitting to the sacrament of baptism. And he didn't wait. And he fellowshiped with the Christians. Verse 34, look, he brought them into his house. Now, as we'll see next week, the very great likelihood is his house was attached to the jail. So he didn't have far to go. He brought them into his house and he set meat before them and he rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. He ministered to the prisoners. He was baptized. He fellowshiped with the Christians. He rejoiced with his family in his belief in God. The jailer and his family are praising God now, along with Paul and Silas. If this isn't a genuine conversion of a man who was a wicked, cruel, despotic man who is now as meek as a lamb, praising God where once he cursed prisoners. 
Those are the actions of a transformed life, aren't they? You know, one of the most important challenges for us as Christians in this is Paul's answer to the jailer's question. A man who has flung himself to the floor in desperation and in the face of certain death asks, what must I do to be saved? He needs a very urgent answer. One of the commentaries I was reading in this gives a good illustration. The best illustration of a man is of a man who's been involved in a road accident, a man or a woman. Let's say it's a man, probably been driving dangerously. And he knows that he is dying, and he's lying on the road, and the paramedics have been there, and they're doing their best, but nothing's happening. And he's only got minutes to live. And he calls out to you and me, because we're bystanders. We're standing there watching this accident. And he cries out to you and me, I'm dying. I've only got minutes left on this earth. What must I do to be saved? He can't do anything. He can't go to church. He can't take communion. He can't do good deeds. He's fatally injured and his life is ebbing away. What must I do to be saved? Tell me urgently. What must I do to be saved? There's only one answer needed. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I shall be saved. You know, it's all we need to know. To know the life-changing forgiveness that is God's free gift in Christ is to know that our response to Christ's saving work is to humbly accept what he has done for us. Anyway, another sinner in Philippi has been saved. That new church we were talking about two weeks ago, that's been extended. Another family of believers have come into the fellowship. First of all, we had Lydia from the high echelons of society. A cultured woman, a businesswoman, comes to Christ with her household. The church begins and it begins in her house and Paul and Silas and the other are fellowshipping with her. The household then uh, becomes the church. And then from the dregs of society, a prostitute slave girl with a mental illness, becomes a Christian, joins the church. Now, a middle-ranking civil servant and his family join the church. For in Christ's kingdom, remember there is neither Jew nor Greek or bond or free or rich or poor, For we who are saved by God's grace are all one in Christ Jesus.